fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Turned to the other and said, we don't know how lucky we are. And the Cuban stopped and said, how lucky you are. I had some place to escape to. And in that sentence, he told us the entire story. If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on earth. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society, just as numbers collected at the hospital. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You're tuning in to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone, and this is episode 20 titled Regime Change and the Crimean Referendum, Ukraine Part 4. Quote, I like criticism, but only if it's my way. End quote. Mark Twain. Yes, we are getting to the tail end of the Oliver Stone Ukraine on Fire series. I should be able to wrap this up in one more episode after this one, and then we will take on From Democracy to Chaos, a documentary showing the more Western Ukraine side of the story. This documentary is really extrapolating and taking a look at the entire Ukraine-Russia situation through the lens of Viktor Yanukovych and the Russian backside that lays primarily east and south where Crimea lays. And so in our last episode, we were doing just that, peeking through the lens of Viktor Yanukovych um, and all the events that led up to and um, during the Maidan revolution. And we also exposed on what potentially was behind its organization. We had a lot of evidence. Uh, we also introduced Oliver Stone's recipe for revolution, which was money, media, and techniques. And we saw the money from NGOs, non-government organizations, the United States, CIA. We saw the media influence with those arising um, uh, media outlets that seemed to have just popped up coincidentally and conveniently during these Maidan revolutions. And then also we will we touch base briefly on the techniques, which we'll expand upon tenfold here today. Um, but yeah, I uh, wanted to wrap up the tail ending of the Maidan revolution, uh, the one of the bloodiest in history, and get up to the point where Yanukovych did his official evacuation and impeachment leading to the regime change. And I wanted to expand upon that regime change, and we saw plenty of evidence. I'll sprinkle in a bit more on how it was backed by the neo-Nazis, the far-right extremists, but I also wanted to extrapolate a bit more on the United States being involved as well. Um, and then we'll wrap back around to color revolutions, take care of that third piece of the recipe for revolution, the techniques and how they connect to color revolutions in general. And then we'll end it with the Crimean referendum. Very important and interesting stuff. Let's get into it. We now fast forward to February 14th, 2014. Uh, this was right around the time where Yanukovych and his administration was having a lot of negotiations with the opposition party um, that was pro-Maidan. And there was this huge release of about 234 protesters that were arrested since December uh, for a lot of law violations. And in return uh, from this release, this was Yanukovych's side. He was releasing the protesters. But in return, his occupied government buildings that um, were primarily occupied by militarized portions of the protest, um, they would be cleared in exchange. And so, yes, this entire time they were doing these negotiations, um, but it wasn't until about February 18th um, when all hell really broke loose, right? We see countless pictures and videos from the documentary, um, plenty of references um, from Chris Casper, uh, Chris Casper Diplo, Diplo um, 
He has an amazing book called Ukraine and the Crossfire. I've mentioned it before. Tons of references that are highlighting the high level of weaponry and artillery that was used by the protesters. More so, it was the extremists because this entire thing really started to shift more towards the extremists that controlled and operated the entire thing. And I'm referring to the right sector, the Sabota, you know, the neo-Nazis. And this is these are were these were all the um, high-level orchestrators of the entire thing. And so Yanukovych, during these negotiations, he saw this militarization uh, around February, and we started to see dozens and hundreds of deaths. And so he decided to declare a truce with the opposition. And regardless, Yanukovych, he knew. Even with the peace signed on paper within these with these uh, opposition parties in the negotiation room, uh, the extremists did not care. They wanted nothing more than the complete removal of Viktor Yanukovych. And so, as we head into February twentieth, this is where it was the most bloodiest incident. Dozens of protesters. Um, I believe the chief of police in the documentary mentioned that 20 police officers were shot dead, over 150 wounded from gunshot wounds. And this is where it turns into a complete war zone. You could peep the picture in my artwork. It's pretty insane. Uh, this made way to the quote-unquote heavenly hundred that they honored, all of those that um, were tragically killed during Euromaidan. And of course... All the fingers were pointed at none other than Viktor Yanukovych. And one of the most fascinating and interesting aspects of this was the sniper massacre. They brought it up briefly in the documentary, and Chris Casper expands on it uh, quite a bit as well. The sniper massacre occurred on on February 20th. I have plenty of photos of the deaths. It was on both sides that these snipers, apparently, were just killing people at will, both sides, did it matter, right? Uh, plenty of references uh, behind this, uh, but what they realized and what Yanukovych said and Chris Casper, first shots were fired from an from a building. Uh, it's called the Building of Conservatory, and this building was actually occupied by the opposition. And this is important because, in a nutshell, the extremists were trying to stir the pot Right, killing the enemy and their own. It's some evil shit. Um, but you see here, there's plenty of evidence that even though they pointed all the fig- fingers again at Yanukovych, there was actually no form whatsoever of orders from Yanukovych or his deputies. So this is what we call a false flag, right? To further escalate the need, the quote unquote need to now the protesters and those of the opposition, they need to arm themselves now. And it becomes much more like a war zone. And so this was one of the most fascinating things, because even after the fact, uh, once the regime change occurred about a year later, they weren't even investigating on who did it, right? They weren't looking at it thoroughly. There's plenty of references and evidence to cite this. And why would they? Because they were the ones that actually had extremists do this to further escalate the process and essentially frame Yanukovych and the police. And so it's really tragic. And before I move forward, I wanted to say a quick little snippet from the book of Chris Casper. Really a great quote here on really outlining what in the world happened during these Maidan revolution, during the Maidan Maidan revolution time period and all the chaos. And so here we go, quote, by now, however, the first and so far only 80 page academic research into the blood bloodbath has been published by the Ukrainian scholar Ivan Kachanovsky of the University of Toronto, which was accepted for presentation at the annual meeting of the American Political Science Association the largest academic conference of political science in the world, which rejects the absolute majority of paper proposals in their peer review process. A summary of the research was also included in a book published by the leading academic press, 
uh, Rutledge, based on an enormous quantity of footage, intercepted radio communications, eyewitnesses, ballistic research, among other evidence, Ivan concludes that, here's his quote, armed groups and the leadership of the far-right organizations such as the Right Sector and Sabota and oligarchic parties such as Fatherland, right, this is the party of Yulia Timoshenko and the soon-to-be Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, which we'll touch base on later on, but as I continue, um, such as Fatherland, were directly or indirectly involved in various capacities in this massacre of the protests and the police. This mass killing was a successful false flag operation, which was organized and conducted by elements of the Maidan leadership and concealed armed groups in order to win the asymmetric conflict during the Euromaidan and seize power in Ukraine. End quote from Ivan. Chris Casper continues, soon after the publication, Ivan's house in Ukraine, which was used primarily for his research, was seized by a dubious trial, while a flood of unsubstantiated slander attempted to discredit him. He was hospitalized several times in Canada, etc., etc. So he just caught the backlash after blowing the whistle on what occurred here from this tragic situation of the sniper massacre and the escalation from peaceful protests into much more violent um, scenarios here in Maidan. It's pretty insane stuff. So let's go back to Viktor Yanukovych. A part of his agreements, um, along with the truce, he agreed to pull back and clear out his police force completely. He also decided or declared to hold early elections and return the country within 48 hours to the 2004 Constitution, which would limit presidential powers and allow the parliament to form a new, quote unquote, government of national unity all within 10 days. So this seems like he really wanted the bloodshed to stop. He did not want to further escalate it. Uh... A dictator usually doesn't try to do this. Um, He must have seen that he was completely out of control and he could not do much more. The extremists and their militarization was overpowering and he was looking for complete peace and an end to the bloodshed. Even in the documentary, Yanukovych says, unfortunately, it's too late. No matter what he did, they made up their mind. Quote, on February 20th and 21st, it was clear that a coup had begun. End quote. So Dmitry Yarosh, I mentioned him in previous episodes. He's the leader of the right sector. Um, He was on stage with a bunch of other um, masked up, geared up, armed militia members. And they were on stage. and And I believe he said, quote, The reached agreements don't meet our requirements. Red Sector will not put down their weapons or lift their blockade from a single government building, end quote. They weren't going to stop until Yanukovych was completely out. And that's exactly what happened. Yanukovych, he escapes the city via helicopter, um, calls up Putin, asking requests to go into Russia, Now, all government buildings were completely occupied by the extremists. Yanukovych and his house was completely taken over. What else could this be, right? And so back to the police that departed, as promised, this is when the opposition party just storms the buildings. And on February 22nd, we see videos of armed insurgents inside the debating chamber of parliament within the Rada. And uh, this was when Yanukovych was officially impeached unconstitutionally, right? And I say unconstitutional, and this lines up also with Chris Casper's writings. Um, This was unconstitutional because many members of parliament fled and weren't present to vote. Again, there was a divide within the government as well, not just within the country, the geographical boundaries, the culture between the people, right? 
But ignoring the armed presence within the chamber of the far-right militia, the impeachment was a violation of the Constitution because it required three-fourths of a majority vote to impeach Mr. Yanukovych. On top of that, it needs to be reviewed by Ukraine's constitutional court. These things did not occur. Parliament of Ukraine consists of 450 deputies. So three-fourths of a vote requires 338 votes to impeach him, but only 328 deputies voted. Go figure. So the interim president becomes Oleksandr Turchinov. He's in place. Plenty of videos of him. Um, even when they were fighting inside the chamber in earlier years in the episodes, uh, we see him in the scuffles, uh, pushing and grabbing. He's definitely a member of the opposition party. He is a temporary president until they plug in Poroshenko. But what comes to follow, from my perspective, will confirm the power that the neo-Nazis and these extreme organizations had in this entire revolution, as if I didn't already say enough proving that. But now we need the official installations of the new interim government. That far-right Sobota party, right, registered in Kiev, um, Mr. Ole Tenenbach, blatantly anti-Semite, you know, this organization was invited to join this new government. They gained positions of prosecutor general, deputy prime minister, and then there were several other individuals in this government that also has participated in other ultranationalist movements as well in the past. Specific examples, Sergei Kivet, minister of education, Tatiana Kornival, secretary of the National Anti-Corruption Commission, uh, Sabota member Alexander Sitch, becomes the new deputy prime minister, and our fucking good friend, Andre Perubi. He's the commander-in-chief of all these right-wing militias and just the overall leader of the radical opposition parties during this Maidan madness. He becomes the secretary of the National Security and Defense Council. And here was a quick snippet from Andre Perubi from uh, on stage, a speech. Quote, we warned them that Maidan would take action if our demands weren't met immediately, end quote. So if this isn't proof in the pudding enough, now that we tapered off with this Maidan revolution that the neo-Nazis were highly involved and in positions of power, remember, this was a question I asked in my earlier episodes. Did they just up and leave from 2014 to now, 2022? I have a funny feeling they didn't especially since the ideology really did travel from the 1950s all the way to now, right? So they're there. They're real. How real are they? And what did they do to other regions of Ukraine, such as Eastern and Crimea and Odessa? We will definitely begin into all that. But quick sidestep, I promise to highlight a few very critical incidences and figures that prove that the U.S. was involved in this regime change as well, right? So during all this chaos, the U.S. State Department, our corrupt government, they salivate. They hop on this immediately, right? And I forgot to mention that they had diplomats themselves involved in the negotiations between Yanukovych and the opposition party during the Maidan revolution. The entire process, they had them in there. Right. So they always had their hands in the cookie jar. So how and who exactly played a role in regards to this entire conflict? Now, aside from the tidbits I mentioned in other episodes, such as the relationship with Stefan, Stefan Bandera and the OUN since the 1950s, um, the scandals that we brushed upon with the CIA and other countries that involve regime changes. Right. Color revolutions. We'll be getting into that. But let's be more specific from Oliver Stone's view, and also lines up again with Chris Casper and all of his research. Um, In the documentary, Oliver Stone, he's speaking with Yanukovych, and he says, or he asks, quote, did you see any evidence of U.S. involvement? End quote. 
Yanukovych replies, quote, U.S. reps and congressmen were frequently guests at that time, right? End quote. And so here they are again, these U.S. senior officials, the one that I told you to stick in your back pocket, the ones that had ties to Lyakovich, who was accused of being the instigator during that Christmas tree night where things started to heat up and turn violent within these protests. We have Jeffrey Pyatt, U.S. ambassador, and Victoria fucking Newland, our assistant secretary of state for European and Eurasian affairs. This is the Biolabs chick, and I can't wait to get into her. Um, Yanukovych mentions that she visited numerous times, right? He said that she visited the Maidan protests herself on the ground, supported the protesters, and also accused the police of abuse of power. This in and itself is completely a no-no, right? And there's even more U.S. involvement. U.S. Senator Democrat from Connecticut, Chris Murphy, on stage. And then we got the neocon, John fucking McCain, up there on stage, speaking to the crowds, the protesters. We stand with Ukraine. We stand with Ukraine. It sounds pretty familiar. Has a ring to it, I would say. And so from the standpoint of of the protesters, I mean, this is money. The confidence and support from all these high-level senior officials backing them in their efforts to challenge this current government, of course they're going to come in and pick a side, right? John McCain said on stage, quote, always a pleasure to be back in Ukraine. This is about the future you want for your country, what you deserve, end quote. I listen to him say that, and I just think to myself, in my opinion, he doesn't give two shits about these people. All he cares about is Ukraine, the value of Ukraine, the resources, this tug of war between superpowers. And they are just playing the crowds like a fiddle, or at least that's how I'm perceiving it. And that's what it looks like, in addition to all the other shit that I have mentioned today, proving that the U.S. was involved purposely. But they always got to play the good guy conveniently, right? Painting the image of a bad guy. And it's always deja vu for many, right? When they kept up with these foreign wars and conflicts over the years. But for some reason, right now today, 2022, that deja vu has turned into dementia. It's sad. Moving forward. Yanukovych felt this foreign involvement from the U.S. and the support for only their rights, right? Remember, there's a divide in this country. Um, Basically, stick your nose out of it. He felt it was wrong, and it just deepened the conflict. And Yanu goes on to say, quote, are protesters allowed to seize government buildings in any other country? Can a Ukrainian ambassador come to the protesters in Ferguson during the Black Lives Matter protests and hand out donuts to protesters and accuse the police officers, end quote? No, the answer is no. And this is powerful stuff. But you see, the U.S. government, especially when it comes to foreign affairs, they don't play by the rules, do they? Right? He mentions, Yanukovych mentions donuts and accusing police officers for a reason. Right? Because this is exactly what Victoria Newland was doing, right? And so why Ukraine? That's always the interesting question. And it's geopolitics. There's always something to gain for someone. And I just believe that the U.S. right now is playing the game better than Putin, right? I deeply believe there's no good guys in this situation, right? But don't say that out loud. You'll become a quacky conspiracy theorist in no time. Oliver Stone goes on to say, quote, who was your highest level government official contact? And quote, Yanukovych says, Joe Biden, fucking Joe Biden, really? He was the vice president at the time. And Yanukovych then says, quote, Mr. Biden said one thing, but then did different things in Ukraine, end quote. Yep, that sounds like Joe Biden to me, whether he's senile or not senile. He's been a snake. He's plenty of video evidence of him saying one thing 
and then saying another thing or him saying one thing and completely doing another thing and botching it on top of that. But I move forward. The U.S. involvement seems clear as day thus far. But what I'm about to discuss right now is probably the most incriminating and interesting link to this entire thing. I'd say it's irrefutable, right? Early February of 2014, when the Maidan protests were starting to turn more violent and really pick up steam, there was a leaked phone call between these senior U.S. officials that I named earlier, Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt. Now, what did they say? I'm going to quote it verbatim from Oliver Stone's documentary, and then I'm going to also um, highlight that this is also included in Chris Casper's book as well, with references. It is quite astonishing. It's astonishing. It's astonishing that this alone isn't the proof in the pudding by itself, highlighting that, yes, the U.S. was involved and has motives in Ukraine. So here we go. Private chat. Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Pyatt, quote, I think we're in play. The Klitschko piece, pause for a second, Vitaly Klitschko, quick reminder, he's one of the three major opposition party leaders, the boxers, or the boxer, he's very relevant right now. You might have seen him plenty of times on social media and on TV moving forward. The Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, especially the announcement of him as deputy prime minister. I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call you need to set up, is exactly the one you made to Yats, and they're referring to Yatsenyuk, um, who, be, who will become the prime minister in the institution, uh, the interim government. And I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario, end quote. Newland goes on to say, quote, good, I don't think Klitschko should go into government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Pyatt, yeah, I guess in terms of him not going into government, just let him stay out and do his political homework and stuff. Newland, I think Yatsenyuk is the guy who's got the economic and governing experience. What he needs is Klitschko and Tinnebach, remember, Tinnebach, leader of Sabota, anti-Semite, far-right extremist, moving forward. Yeah, she acknowledges this guy. Nothing to see here, folks, right? She goes on, on her quote, she needs Klitschko and Tinnebach on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know? I just think Klitschko going in, He's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Pyatt, yeah, no, I think that's right. Okay, good. Do you want us to set up a call with him as the next step? Newland kind of takes a sidestep. She says, quote, Sullivan's come back to me VFR, which means direct to me, saying you need Vice President Biden. And I said probably tomorrow for an attaboy and to get the details to stick so Biden's willing, end quote. So this was a leaked conversation. And a lot of shysty stuff is going on here. The acknowledgement of the neo-Nazis, the opposition party, how they're on the same team. And they're basically discussing how they're going to restructure this government before it's even done. Like we're in play, that was said. This is high-level criminality, in my opinion, and proof that the U.S. was involved in this literal coup d'etat. What else do you call it? This regime change. And I wanted to transition nicely here with the U.S., because when we speak of the color revolutions, right, this is exactly what Robert Perry was getting into. Robert Perry, again, he's the investigative journalist, Consortium News, the CIA exposer he's interviewed in this documentary. But, you know, with the color revolutions, um, Robert Perry mentions that not all the government was on board with this Newland, Jeffrey Pyatt regime change scenario, right? There's a divide within our government as well. 
and neocons, neoconservatives, right? These are the warmongers. Of course, they're on board, and we could throw Victoria Nuland and Jeffrey Pyatt in it. We could throw John McCain, Joe Biden. Some could say George Bush. We'll see John Kerry showing his face plenty of times in Ukraine as well. Obama gets thrown in this mix as well. These are the warmongers. And these strategies are far from unfamiliar. So regime changes occur via color revolutions, right? And Oliver Stone points out how we see these patterns elsewhere around the world. There's tons of other color revolutions, right? It's a fascinating topic that I've been researching long before this situation in Ukraine this year and this documentary that I'm summarizing. And it's insane. The Maidan revolution is terrifyingly similar to Yemen, Lebanon, Libya, Syria, Venezuela, Iran, Georgia, the Rose Revolution. I mean, there's so many. The U.S. has been dabbling in other countries for a very, very long time. To even suspect them and be called a conspiracy theorist, I think that's kind of crazy because this was always a talking point or an argument from the left. They were always saying that America is evil. Look at our imperialism, how we always have troops stationed everywhere. Yeah, we do. They have been doing this. And specifically, it's neoconservatives. They have the skill. And now with a ton of behind the scenes support and funding, right? And this goes back to the recipe for revolution. You need the money to do it, the funders. But I would say the media is probably the most important. And then it's just getting all the masses to do those techniques via protests, revolutions, right? And so it's a it's a shame, but let's continue on with these techniques. Um, this is all well-experienced stuff. It's all for geopolitical gains, right? They have plenty of experience, and it's always in a manner of demonizing a political leader that they're trying to replace, Right, using all these methods and the recipe for revolution to overthrow certain governments and install their own with their control. And we see a situation that's always gray, but then they paint it as black and white. And if you even think, mention, or write an article, or dare to write a report or do something on the news questioning if the, if the situation isn't black and white and might be gray, well, then all of a sudden you become a Putin apologist a Yanukovych apologist, right? And it seems to me like a much more deceptive way of conquering the world without actually setting the boots on the ground. Is this really like, Am I? do I need a tinfoil hat for this? I don't think so. And it sucks because the peaceful individuals, the people who really do believe in um, Ukrainian independence, they get hit the hardest, right? And... It's a damn shame. The innocent people stuck between superpowers and these geopolitical games. And that's just my fucking opinion. So I decided to Google color revolutions. And I have Googled it before, but nowadays I Google it and I see overwhelming articles and images displaying that the color revolutions are nothing more than pro-Kremlin disinformation narratives about popular protests in the Baltic states. It's quite fascinating. I mean, this is what this is what most of the book covers. Uh, most of the book cover readers will stumble upon, right? They don't want to read the entire book. They just read the cover and think that they know the substance within it. If they just breeze through in Google, now they will just think, oh, anyone who talks about color revolutions, well, that's Russian disinformation. Much like Trump with Russian collusion, much like Hunter Biden and his laptop, that was Russian disinformation, but now it's true. And remember, I think this is important because they always have to connect bad Russia with the bad orange man, right? And of course, they're going to connect it with there was no coup that occurred here, folks. There was nothing at all that occurred during our elections, right? It's just something to think about with Google 
in the news. But I move forward. So the recipe for revolution um, and in Oliver Stone, it just makes me think. So what is he? Is he a Russian asset? Right? Is that what we're, we're doing here? Anyone who questions the narrative and they have some type of public image or platform, now we're going to deem them as Russian assets, pro-Kremlin conspiracy theories, right? Does Putin really have that much of a hold on our country? Is that really what we're dealing with here? And it's just insane because Oliver Stone and Chris Casper, they're pretty detailed. There's a lot of info, references, pictures, footage, facts laid out by Oliver Stone and Chris Casper. I'm having a difficult time capturing the counter to these presentations and accusations. But Google will tell me exactly without telling me exactly. <laughs> the color revolution is orchestrated by the by the West. That's a conspiracy theory. Protesters were paid and instructed by the West. Conspiracy theory. CIA and other secret services are behind it. Conspiracy theory. Ukrainian plot, conspiracy theory. Nazis, fascists, conspiracy fucking theory. I don't get it, right? So we seem to have stumbled upon conflicting narratives. And I'm just stuck between A, Oliver Stone and Chris Casper here are telling the truth with this insane amount of detail that lines up with actual reality, right? Actual leaked footage, actual events that occurred. Or B, they're just Russian assets spreading pro-Kremlin misinformation and the mainstream media and the big tech overlords who have lied to us since 2020, probably prior to that, but for sure since 2020, we've caught them repeatedly lying. You wonder why there's such a distrust but we got to believe him now, especially now, right? So let us continue on this journey and may the evidence unfold accordingly. According to Oliver Stone and Robert Perry, the masterminds of color revolutions know they need these mass followings to truly believe that they are one and they perfected the art. Symbolism is one of the most powerful tools to achieve this. Right. And is it just a coincidence that we see the same damn communist fist over and over again in these revolutions and Black Lives Matter, by the way? It's very interesting. But overall, this is a part of the symbolism, creating a group identity, depersonalizing the individual. This is a key component when it comes to these revolutions. It makes the masses much easier to manipulate. On top of that, let's tap into those emotions. The usage of martyrs, right? An example of this is the Viktor Yushchenko poisoning prior to his election, right? It was always suspected that the Russians did it, but it was always a mystery. And he even said himself that it was 50,000 times the dosage, Agent Orange, but somehow he survived, right? A martyr. Or the mysterious beatings and deaths of specific supporters of Maidan, right? The sniper killings, you know, the death of the innocent and just leverage, leveraging that as a martyr, right? Leveraging these victims, it's evil to me. But this is what they do to further push an agenda and move the masses where they want them to move, and it's always commonly found within each of these color revolutions in one way, shape, or form. Dig deeper, I urge you. But symbol after symbol, the same exact fists, revolution after revolution, this always leads to coups in countries all over the world. Right? A regime replacement. It's funny how this works. And it's pretty fascinating to me. I'm astonished that people don't want to dig deeper into this. But overall, I laid out plenty of evidence in my earlier videos of how the U.S. is involved 
and how the neo-Nazis and the extremists were really, really fucking involved when it comes to the Maidan revolution. But my goodness, if all of this is bullshit, this documentary, this book, the hundreds of citations, plus my own due diligence researching each of these individuals and the event, will someone please set me in my place, reach out to me, debunk specifics as much as possible, maybe quotes, the references, the information, whatever. Don't just broadly conflate me into pro-Kremlin misinformation. You spoke of the color revolutions, conspiracy theorists. I am not going to buy that shit. So to summarize, before we transition into Crimea, Oliver Stone makes the claim that all of these revolutions, they leverage these political scenarios. They leverage the innocent, the peaceful protesters against a common enemy. And this always transitions into a coup d'etat. Again, funded, organized, planned in advance with repeatable steps and tactics. He presents a vast amount of Evidence, history, facts, name drops, key players here and there, proper titles, participation. He identifies the involvement of the U.S. and how they antagonize Russia. You know, it's really, really evident to me. And if I'm off in La La Land, I urge someone to do the same amount of research that I have been doing. I'm talking hours and again, just put me in my place. So this might be one of my longer parts. I really do want to wrap up this Ukraine on fire series. Uh, Crimea. This is one of the biggest red flags to me and to this day is still being considered a quote unquote invasion. So in is the situation in Crimea, which is in South Ukraine, and the Crimean referendum. Um, is this situation an invasion? Right. Crimean authorities fully supported Viktor Yanukovych's decision to postpone the EU deal, the European Union deal, the negotiations that he put on pause, which led to the beginning of the protests. Crimea was in support of this, along with the eastern part, right? Again, that divide. They were pro-Russian. This is a statement from the Supreme Council of the Autonomous Republic of Crimea. It says, quote, Basing on the will of the Crimean people who elected us, we declare that we will not give the Crimea to extremists and neo-Nazis seeking to seize power in Ukraine at the cost of the blood of its country and citizens. End quote. January 22nd, 2014. It seems to me that Crimea did not want another Maidan revolution. They did not want these extremists here. Rumors spread to the new authorities that they would be merciless to those who opposed them. This led to the pro-Russian demonstration. Now, am I not supposed to believe my lying eyes when I see thousands gathered in Crimea with more than a plethora of Russian flags and anti-Nazi flags in support of Crimea becoming Russian? The people hoped the government would protect them from the Ukrainian extremists when this regime change occurred. So the Crimean referendum was held, and it was an outlandish victory. Over 90% voted in favor of Crimea becoming the Russian Federation, 96.77%, 2.51% to stay with Ukraine. It was an 83.1% turnout. But you know how this is being presented? As a Russian invasion, right? The Western media outlets say that Putin invaded it or illegally annexed it. That the election was being held with Russian troops and guns pointed at their heads. My question is, if that was the case, where's the demonstrations? Right? Against that. Where is the Maidan? There would be a Maidan protest, right? We saw that occur in Kiev when there was fraud during Yushchenko and Yanukovych. 
Why was there so many pro-Russian protests if that was the case? There's plenty of news reporters and broadcasters and footage of the people supporting Russia. Right? And so, if the people genuinely felt they were being intimidated and threatened by Putin and the Russian government, there wouldn't be these mass protests waving of Russian flags and anti-Nazi flags. Right? Putin says this, quote, in his interviews with Oliver Stone, quote, What is a democracy? Is the vote of the people. We should respect people's choices, choices and not manipulate international law and the principles of democracy every time according to your geopolitical interests, end quote. Do I have to take him 100% as truth that he's saying that truthfully? No, I don't have to. But those words are true within certain our countries. Our country and certain countries, when it comes to preserving democracy, the people decide. They vote for it. And this is what happened in Crimea, in my opinion. And I have other sources as well. Right? And it's all about how the Crimean situation is presented. Right? It was invaded. The election was Ill- illegitimate, unconstitutional, heavy military presence. But the thing was, nobody was shot. Nobody was killed. No riots. Right? And so the heavy military presence, why is this important? The fact of the matter is, there has always been heavy military presence. Russian soldiers has been present in Crimea for quite a while, since the Black Sea Fleet. Right? The Black Sea Fleet is and has been stationed there. Since 1804, Sevastopol has been the naval base and main military port for the Russian Empire on the Black Sea. Crimea is that south part right under Ukraine. Or it is Ukraine, but the bottom part of Ukraine that leads into the Black Sea. Right? So World War II, war was being raged at Sevastopol. Thousands died, and there's a legacy that exists there. A place of honor. So it makes sense that the citizens of Crimea have been pro-Russian. Right? And so Robert Perry goes on and makes the comparison to the Cuban Missile Crisis when Fidel Castro linked up with Stalin to place missiles in Cuba. If Cuba is in the backyard, 1,134 miles away from D.C., well, the capturing of the Russian naval base in Crimea for Russia, the distance to Moscow is 790 miles away. So think about it from Putin's lens, through Putin's lens and Yanukovych. A Crimean takeover by pro-Ukrainian Nazis, EU, NATO, right? This would be an absolute nightmare and a legitimate threat, no? Especially considering NATO's expansion into 13 countries up to the border. And we can get into the details about prior agreements, how they... Um, have agreed to in the past to not move an inch eastward, right? And so these are things that need to come into play when we're trying to understand the entirety of the situation. And Putin has every right to be concerned with this NATO expansion, right? And he goes on to say how every country, once they become a member of NATO, they become a vassal that can't resist the agendas and pressures of the United States. It's pretty incredible. And so, as I move forward here, I wanted to wrap this up. You know, uh, a quick recap uh, quick recap here. There's going to be a break off into the East and the war, the Donbass war, and the Ukrainians really do treat Eastern Ukraine um uh, Quite brutally, honestly, um, we will get into it a little bit. I'll open up uh, with a bit more detail on that in the next episode. Uh, plenty more to get into and just wrap up this entire documentary. But again, the main point and takeaway here, there is an astonishing amount of evidence that links the far-right extremists and the U.S. 
um, to this regime change from the Maidan revolution. It looked like an organized coup. Um, the recipe for a revolution, money, media, techniques, this was all a part of it. Plenty of evidence and plenty of things that I've said and plenty of people and individuals I've cited and uh, listed off, right? And so I urge people again to watch this documentary, Oliver Stone, Ukraine on Fire. Um, you know, and the Crimea situation is just one major, major red flag that I am urging people or someone to correct me and straighten it out because from my perspective, the way the Western media outlets are presenting it, it seems like a lie to me. And so you non-conspiracy theorists know-it-alls, send me the goods and let me know. Again, I am simply quoting and citing the evidence presented in this documentary and also adding in the Chris Casper book, uh, Ukraine in the Crossfire purchase. Go watch on your own. Um, you know, I'm just trying to do my best in this entire series to understand the complexities over there in Ukraine. And if you've been tuning in this entire time, it seems like you want to understand as well. I'm not just going to keep relying on Google or Wikipedia alone or the mainstream media alone. I'm going to dig a bit deeper. So in my next episode, I'll explain how the East, uh, the separatists of Russia broke off the Donbass War. And uh, we're going to get into the Odessa massacre. How many people know about that atrocious event? We will get into the very mysterious Malaysia Airlines catastrophe and what happened after that. And again, it just leaves me questioning narratives and searching for answers. Conspiracy theories? You be the judge. I gave you plenty to work with. The, the plot continues to fucking thicken. And so, please, like, share, subscribe, all that shit. And thank you, again, from the, from the bottom of my heart, for listening to The Unveiled Patriot with yours truly, Travis Masterbone. And I look forward to you tuning in next time. Farewell. <laughs>